right, we are currently preaching through the New Testament book of Acts, and I don't know about you, but Acts is challenging me in a variety of ways. So it's the story of the early days of Jesus' church, how Jesus' church is being formed. And so we find that it is starting from these meager beginnings, but then the church just explodes. And many people believe in Jesus, and great and powerful things are happening even as the church is being actively opposed, as persecution is happening, as death is being threatened, and also people are actually dying as well. And yet, in the midst of all of this, Jesus' church is thriving. So as I'm reading in Acts, I'm reading about Jesus' church in the early days, and I've been struck by a number of realities. One of those is this idea that people are all in on Jesus. Not halfway, but they are infatuated with him. They are committed to Jesus because they're understanding how Jesus has committed himself to them. And so they're giving their lives to him, their possessions. They're giving their physical lives to him to the point of death in some cases. They're following him without abandon. And so people are all in on Jesus. But I also see this idea of power that's present in the book of Acts. How God's spirit does come and fall on people in ways that are unexplainable to our physical reality. Diseases are being healed. People are believing the gospel. This is a miracle in and of itself as well. And out of this, like gladness is abounding. People are filled with joy, even as they're being threatened with death. And I read this and I think, man, I want that. I want that for you as much as I want that for myself. I want to give myself to something significant in the few days I have on this earth. I want to see Jesus for who he is because the comforts of this world are so temporary They are so fleeting. They're unreliable. And yet we read these promises in the Bible that Jesus, he says, I will never leave you. In the face of the worst circumstances we will face on this earth, Jesus doesn't blink. He stands by our side. He is unflinching. And I want that. I want Jesus. And you do too. Though at times you might think you want something else, the cravings that you feel inside of yourselves, the longings that you have are only ultimately and fully realized in Jesus. So Acts is beckoning us. Hey, look at this man. This man who is God, who came, who drew near, who loves who sacrifices, believe in him, orient your lives around him, pin all of your hopes on him. So today we're going to be in Acts 
chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you guys to turn there. If you have a device, go ahead and you can swipe there. Or you can follow along on the screen behind me. I'm going to read Acts 12. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him. And were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. <clears throat> okay, so this section begins with an introduction to Herod. So this is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is the one that we read about in Matthew chapter 2. Okay, and in Matthew chapter 2, we read about Herod seeking to kill all of the male children under two years old in Bethlehem. And the reason for this is because he had heard that there was this baby who was supposed to be a king. And this was Jesus. So because he couldn't find Jesus, he sought to just kill all of those babies to ensure that he would kill 
Jesus. So what we're reading about Herod in Acts 12 is consistent with his experience growing up. This is normative within his family. You don't like something, you resort to violence. You will just kill to fix the problem. And so we read then here that Herod laid violent hands on members of Jesus' church, including, a, including killing a man named James, okay? And so he realizes that this action pleased the Jews, okay? Now, we, have, uh, we talked in an earlier week about this phrase, the Jews, Okay, this is not all Jewish people, but this is talking about those who are opponents of Jesus' church, oftentimes referring to the Jewish religious leaders. So there's this divide between Jesus' church and the Jewish religious leaders, and it's because of their conception of the Messiah. The Jewish religious leaders were expecting this political, military conqueror. And so when Jesus is being referred to as the Messiah, he doesn't fit their conceptions of who this Messiah should be. And so they can't get on board with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the Jews then are references that we read to or about in Acts referring to these opponents of Jesus and his church. Now Herod's persecution of the Christians is interesting because he sees how it pleases the people. And my guess is when we read this, we probably would view ourselves as different than Herod. We're going to at least think, why well, I'm on a different team than Herod. But one reason why these details are included in the Bible and why it's important for us to read these details and to consider these details is because we are more like Herod than we might want to admit. All of us. We are people pleasers. Every single one of us has this inside of us. Maybe it's because we're insecure. And so getting a a pat on the back will help to provide some security or affirmation. Maybe it's because we hate conflict. So we're just not going to address things that make us uncomfortable or that will make other people uncomfortable. Maybe uh, we're people pleasers because we weren't loved well in form formative years. Now, receiving affirmation isn't necessarily bad. But living your life for the approval and the adulation of others will always end poorly. And it won't lead to Jesus. See, people-pleasing is actually a selfish endeavor. Even though we oftentimes might tell ourselves, well, I'm actually being kind to these people. I'm actually serving these people that are being pleased Ultimately, this becomes a selfish endeavor because we have ourselves as the focus. We're pleasing these people to accommodate ourselves. And when we are focused on ourselves, ultimately this will demean others. When we are seeking to please other people in a selfish way, it's ultimately a way for us to use other people, not to serve them. And this is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. 
follow Jesus means we deny ourselves our desires. It requires a form of death. To not die to ourselves will result in death for others. Ourselves as well, but in the death of others, that might be emotionally, it might be physically. And so ultimately, what we find is that it's either self-denial or it's self-indulgence or self-expression. And you shouldn't have to think too hard about the culture that we live in. We hear over and over this call, you deserve it. This encouragement to indulge yourself. And Herod illustrates this well. He killed James. And what did he hear? Applause. So what does he then seek to do? He seeks to kill another Christian. So he goes and he arrests Peter. And so what happens then as he is doing, as Herod is doing this to James, to Peter, there are other Christians that feel death. The families of these individuals feel death. But ultimately, Herod is experiencing spiritual death. He thinks that he's getting what he wants, but ultimately he is killing himself. So denial of self, though it oftentimes doesn't feel like it when we engage in it, actually leads to our flourishing. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants our flourishing. That's why he calls us to death to self. And all of Acts, the whole, the whole book of Acts demonstrates this reality. Christians are glad, filled with joy, happy in the face of persecution, in the face of death threats. This is what happens. They are flourishing in and through Jesus. Okay, so let's move on to Peter here. So Peter is arrested, and the express purpose is so that he might be executed. Okay, so a pretty grim story here. A couple of helpful details. Did you catch when all of this was happening? So it said this was happening during the days of unleavened bread and after the Passover. So these were large celebrations, annual celebrations for Jewish people. And so Herod's execution of Peter needed to wait until these feasts and festivals had come to a conclusion. So he's just waiting until that happens. But for us as readers today, as we're reading this, there's significance to the mention of unleavened bread and Passover. So quick review, Passover, Israel was enslaved in the country of Egypt under harsh oppression, and so they cried out to God, God, will you come and rescue us? And God hears their cry for help, but there's a leader in Egypt who we know as Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. And so what God does then is he sends 10 plagues upon the Egyptian country and people, all of them seeking to convince the leader, the Pharaoh, to let God's people go. 
and he says no, and then sometimes he says yes, and then he changes his mind, and he says no, you can't. And so ultimately we get to the 10th plague, and the last one was the death of the firstborn in each household. Now Israel had heard from God, and God had instructed them to sacrifice a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb on the door frames so that when God's spirit came through the land and those firstborn were going to die, wherever God's spirit encountered the blood of a lamb, he would pass over that house. The blood of the lamb would save the firstborn in those houses. So that is where Passover comes from. And this is a great deliverance that occurred that Israel wanted to celebrate over and over God's kindness and his rescue of them. But connected to this then was the days of unleavened bread. So the days of unleavened bread was the week following Passover. And this was an annual feast that celebrated Israel's escape from Egypt. So their escape happened quickly so quickly that their bread didn't have leaven or yeast in it. And so it was a very peculiar type of bread. So what Israel did then in the years that followed followed during the days of unleavened bread is that they would make unleavened bread. And they would eat this certain type of bread to remember God's salvation of them. Specifically how it happened quickly how it was supernatural, how it was amazing. But they wanted to remember God's salvation of them. So you might wonder, how does that correlate to the story of Peter being in prison? So let's jump into that here. So the time of celebration had passed, and now Herod was ready to bring Peter out for execution But the night before that was to happen, something amazing happened to Peter. First of all, Peter is sleeping, and it seems he's sleeping pretty soundly. Because much of what occurs in this story he thinks is a vision that is happening in his sleep. Now, what I find so striking is that Peter is sleeping at all. Because the next day... He's going to be brought out for execution. Okay, I could not sleep. If I was in that position, there's no way I'm sleeping. And think about yourselves. You ever had a conflict going on in your life that stole sleep from you? We can get bent out of shape over a hard conversation. We lose sleep when there's so much work to do. I have a hard time believing many of us would be able to sleep if we knew we were going to be executed the next day. And so as we read this, even in this, there's a call for us to grow in faith and to receive the fruit of peace the Holy Spirit provides for those trusting in Jesus. Because when we read about Peter, we can read what it says, or we can see what's described in Philippians 4, 7, that there is this peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I don't get, I don't get how Peter is sleeping at that moment. It transcends one's understanding 
But there's an invitation here for us. What was offered to Peter is offered to you and I here and now, today. If our hopes are pitted on Jesus, he promises to offer, give these realities to us as well. And so there's this invitation, this call to be marked in this way. When God's Spirit comes and lives in us, one of the fruits, the products, the results of His Spirit living in us is peace. It's not something we have to work and create. This is something God gives to us. It's a gift of grace. Okay, so we also read here that Peter is heavily guarded. So there's a guard on each side of him. He's chained. There's other guards outside his door. But then an angel breaks into his sleep and says, get up quickly. And the chains fall off of his hands. He dresses himself and then walks out of the prison. And then he heads on to his friends and makes an appearance. So first of all, we see a miraculous rescue. Peter is headed for certain death. Out of nowhere, unexplainably, escape occurs. And then this results in the breaking out of joy for the followers of Jesus. So Jesus' followers were amazed. The impossible had happened. Death was defeated. This is a miraculous rescue. But second, there's a bunch of specific details given in this story about Peter. So it talks about this happening at Passover and unleavened bread. It talks about him being detained by Herod. He's laid between two guards. There's many soldiers ensuring that he stays in prison. There's a presence of an angel. He's struck on the side. He appears to a woman. After appearing, people didn't believe that it was him. He was mistaken for an angel. There's amazement and joy that are produced. And then there's this call to go and tell. Now, some of this might seem like normal storytelling, and I think it is. But when we compare what we're reading here in this story to some of the details given to us around the death and resurrection of Jesus, it becomes really peculiar because we see these exact same things going on around Jesus. That was his death and resurrection was happening at Passover. He also was detained by Herod. Instead of laying between two guards, he hung between two criminals. There were many soldiers outside his tomb. Where Peter was struck on the side, Jesus was pierced in the side. There at his tomb, there was a presence of an angel. Jesus appeared to a woman, and this resulted in disbelief. He also was mistaken for a ghost. Out of his resurrection, there was unbreakable joy and this call to go and tell. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because there's a central story that runs throughout the Bible. And it is the story of God's rescue of a people in need. It is a story of salvation. We see it as God delivers his people in Egypt. 
It's evident as Jesus raises from the dead, and again, now in Acts 12. But we are not to stop here. These physical examples of God's salvation are what we are intended to experience in a greater way today as well. God saves us from our sins, and this is the story that we're intended to be wrapped up in, that we are intended to give our lives to, a story that we then can share with other people. Your greatest enemy has been defeated. You are no longer a slave. In the face of your own inadequacy, Jesus is sufficient. In the face of your failure and your sin, Jesus forgives you. In the face of your fears, Jesus is stronger. He is better. He is more sure and more powerful and constant. Freedom and joy and peace are found in Jesus, but only in Jesus. There's no cheap imitations. So why this is important is because we're intended to understand this is God's salvation. He saves us. And we've got to be really clear about the nature of this salvation. When Peter is sitting in his prison cell, how did he get the chains off of himself? He didn't. He didn't. They fell off of him. He didn't go frisk a guard to find the keys. He didn't outsmart the captors. He didn't run faster. The chains fell off of him. God saved him. Peter was half asleep. Still walked out of there. God led him past the guards. God led him out of the gates. God did it. He is the one who saves. So let's be really clear. We don't add to God's salvation. We don't supplement God's salvation. We don't help him in any way. He does it all. And that is the good news of the gospel because that is a salvation that can't be taken away from us. You can't lose that salvation because it's pinned on Jesus and what he has done for us. So God does it all. And this is why when Peter has been led out of the prison and goes to the house where followers of Jesus are known to gather, they are praying So they're not writing letters to senators. They're not trying to figure out how they're going to break Peter out of the prison. They know the one that is able to save. They know Jesus has gone into death and walked back out of it. Their belief is in the one, the God who saves. So they are coming together and calling upon his name. Because he's the one who is crucial. So Center Church, this is who God is. He is a God who saves. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he possesses this power? Is that how you walk through your days? full of peace, sturdy, 
convinced that he is over everyone and everything. If you are a Christian, Jesus has saved you. Your greatest enemy has been defeated. Everything else is below you. Now hear me on this. Salvation is primarily from sin. Okay? So the salvation that we're talking here about is spiritual. So I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that James died. James died. Peter lived. At least in the near term. So if, our, if we read this story and our emphasis is on the physical deliverance experienced by Peter, we're going to get wrong conceptions about God. If that's, if that's what we think this story is ultimately about. The physical is pointing to something greater, a spiritual reality. And if we're not focused on that, then we're going to walk through our lives and we're going to think, what about this person? Why didn't they escape the bondage they were in? Why didn't they get healed? Why didn't they experience this? Did they not have enough faith? Following Jesus means we are given spiritual comfort amidst physical suffering. Spiritual comfort amidst physical suffering. So the Christian life has this blend of suffering and comfort. And none of us gets to throw off the reality of suffering. The comfort becomes sweeter because of the suffering, in the midst of the suffering. And as much as any of us might want to avoid the suffering, we're not going to. We're not going to. And in fact, God's kindness is going to be shown to us that he will bring comfort in greater ways than we have probably ever experienced through the suffering. So none of us is going to run to the front of the line and ask for suffering. But there are promises for us in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, and in the midst of suffering. There may have been days later in Peter's life when the suffering was so great, he may have wished he died. The salvation God provides is spiritual, sometimes physical, but ultimately spiritual. And that salvation is surprising, it is quick, and it's intended to inform our whole physical existence. And so as we read the Bible, as we walk through our lives, we're given these ongoing pictures pointing us back to Jesus' death and resurrection because that is what's crucial, okay? So we don't read this story and say, look at Peter, look at this great thing that he did. No, the whole point of Peter's story is to get us to Jesus, to get us back to Jesus' death and his resurrection. And this also is why we end our sermons in this way.
because we want to be reminded. We need to be convinced over and over and over. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not primarily about what we need to do. That doesn't mean we're not going to be called to live and serve and act in certain ways. But that has to flow out of us understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So first of all, Jesus' salvation is powerful, it's miraculous, and it's awe-inspiring. I wish I could easily help us feel the consequence of what Jesus has done. I wish I could help us easily feel the weightiness that Jesus intends for us. If you are a Christian, you have an amazing story to tell, a miraculous story to tell. Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that your salvation is amazing? Yes, it is. That it is a profound story to tell other people. See, the weightiness in which we experience Jesus' salvation in ourselves will correlate to what we are saved from. If we're saved from something little, then we'll probably not be that excited to tell our story. If our salvation is a miracle, if I had no hope other than Jesus chasing after me and grabbing hold of me, that's a story to tell. If I can't do it on my own, but I was totally dependent on Jesus, that's a story to tell. So are you convinced that you needed to be saved by a miracle? Or did you grow up in the church and think, man, I was basically born in the church nursery, and so like, it, it just wasn't that profound? Are you convinced that it required a divine power to save you? Because it did. You did. Are you awed by your story, what Jesus has done for you? So I don't ask these questions to compel guilt or to make you feel uncertain about your salvation. I'm asking the questions because the repeated picture we get of Jesus' salvation is this. It's amazing. It's miraculous. It's awe-inspiring. And this story is told over and over in the Bible. And so if we don't find ourselves in this spot as it pertains to our own salvation story, I don't want you to go on living another day wondering, fearing, avoiding this, hoping that it's just going to work itself out. I want you to have sturdiness in Jesus. I want you to be excited about your story and to tell it to others. So Jesus' salvation is powerful, miraculous, and awe-inspiring. And listen, if you don't find yourself in that spot Man, I'd love to have a conversation with you after the service, or you can shoot me an email or a Slack message, and I'd love to to chat with you.
about that. All right, secondly, earnest prayer is an exchange of love and a means to express grief. So I love this picture of Jesus' church in earnest prayer that we're given in this story. They were grieving for their loss of Peter and for Peter himself. This was a way for them to be reminded of Jesus' love when maybe they were questioning Jesus' love. It was a way for them to love Peter despite the separation that they felt from him. This was a way for them to love each other as well. So prayer isn't merely a spiritual discipline. It's how we relate to the one who saved us. It's how we connect deeply with one another as well. It's a means for growing in faith in Jesus. It's how we process through this life that we are walking through. It's a way in which we're able to be reminded of Jesus and to embody Jesus and the gospel to other people as well. Earnest prayer shows regard for others. It is a way in which we are able to deny ourselves. So Center Church, I want to encourage us in prayer. Without laying down laws, I want to invite us into nearness with Jesus and connectedness with one another. This is an invitation to give of yourself. Earnest prayer is an invitation to be vulnerable. Earnest prayer is an invitation for you to confess your sin, to acknowledge your weakness, to weep with others, to ask Jesus to save others, to ask Jesus to heal. It's an opportunity for us to not to deny ourselves and to find life, true life in Jesus.